0: What you're about to hear is a lecture that Rene Girard gave at the 1993 annual conference of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion held at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The talk is as relevant today as it was when Professor Girard delivered it. The Cornerstone Forum is pleased to make Professor Girard's remarks available. Thank you for your interest in these themes and in the work of the Cornerstone Forum in bringing them to the attention of a wider contemporary audience. René Girard. Well, I feel I shouldn't give a lecture. I should explain what I'm trying to do here. And, you know, I reached Christian scripture, beginning with literature and mimetic desire, then on with the anthropological texts and tragedy and the sacred, And then I end it with Christian Scripture. And what I think I must do is to show that even though this is my itinerary, you know, Christian Scriptures came last, they are really first in a deeper sense, which must be demonstrated in a way. In other words, I would like to do my... uh, work in reverse, you know, starting from Christian scripture. And in a way, with a polemical intent, as always, in the book of John Milbank, which I think is admirable in many ways, he sees me as a sociologist superimposing upon the Christian text things that do not belong to it, you know, my theory, or what in France they call very often le système Girard, you know the formula which i find very hateful and which is included even in the prefaces of some of the of some of my books you know so that's pretty bad um and i kind of i've been trying you know to formulate the whole theory from the standpoint of the gospels and i i, I have several lectures with that because i can approach it from various angles And the question of anti-Semitism and the Gospels is one. Not that it's a secondary question, it's an extremely important question, but there can be other approaches, or one of the main approaches could be the the crisis of, not only of Christianity, but of religion in the modern world. And I think the two crises, in a way, are one. Now today you know the presence of anti-Jewish, material in the Gospels is so widely discussed that many people take for granted that uh, it's a demonstrated fact. I do not share this view, but I regard the suspicion as legitimate, not because of the text of the Gospel, but because of the way traditionally it's been read. I fear that many essential aspects which have something to do with the subject that interests me with the mimetic aspects of the Gospel and the founding murder, have not been read. And of course, there is a large, fairly large body of text, which are all in Jesus' mind, which I think uh, formulate explicitly the mimetic and scapegoat theory, quote-unquote. In the Curses Against the Pharisees, as you know, Jesus says, you have killed all the prophets and you're going to kill me in the same fashion. Now, this is the type of text, of course, which is read in a purely Jewish context. There is no doubt that the Jews are the first uh, target of attack. And they are also in the parable of the vineyard you know the owner of the land creates a vineyard on the land then lets it to tenants and after that he leaves for a distant land and uh, when he sends messengers to receive his share of the crop they are killed and the last one is the son of the owner who is killed too in the same manner collectively So, the Jews are suddenly there, but they cannot be alone. Take the statement about the murdered prophets. Luke speaks of all the blood shed since the foundation of the world, the blood of Abel the just. There were no Jews at the time of Abel. It can be objected, of course, that among both Jews and Christians, there is a tendency to regard the whole of Genesis as Jewish history, and the Gospels might be doing the same thing. This is true. But then what about the statement all over the earth, which is in both? And you know, I missed that one, which is amazing, because it's the most important one. It's not in, in my book. A.P. test guess, you know, which means it's, it's in both Matthew and Luke. If the murders were committed all over the earth, how could the Jews alone be responsible for them? all over the earth, since the foundation of the world. The idea of worldwide murders is relevant not because it spreads the guilt around, it makes it thinner, so to speak, but because it forces us to ask the question, why is this in the, why would that be, what is the purpose of the Gospels? And it's in all four of them, which is very important, It's in all four. It's in a very different form in John, which is the devil was a murderer from the beginning, and one has to make some comments on that in order to realize that it is really the same statement. So, what is it about? You know, the immediate answer, and which Freud took for granted, and which is is an answer, the answer of comparative religion. The answer of comparative religion at the end of the 19th century, which discovered something which is very important, and today is not really forgotten. It's no longer fashionable because we speak of religion in terms of differences, not of sameness, you know. But this language in terms of differences means that all religions are equally different, which the Christian revelation the Christian attitude toward their scripture is very different from that. And the question is why? If the Christians, you know, they say their religion is absolutely singular, why should these things about the similarities between what is most central to the Gospels and most central to many other religions be mentioned in the Gospels themselves? This is, I think, what Christian exegesis and theology has not taken into account. Because I think from the beginning of Christianity, comparative religion was seen as a threat. We live in the world of comparative religion. It's been especially true since the Renaissance. But probably there has always been a fear in the Christians of too much emphasis on what makes Christianity similar to other religions. In most founding myths in archaic society and in great stories of origin of the great cultures, you have a crisis, then you have a collective murder, then you have a religious epiphany. That's what comparative religion in the 19th century discovered or rediscovered because you can find Early, you know, writers at the beginning of Christian times who speak about that. And it was discovered against Christianity. And it did not cause any re-examination of these texts, which is very curious. There was no Christian response to the attacks coming from comparative religion at the end of the 19th century. And the so-called modernist crisis, you know, which is a crisis of faith, and you can say that the whole 20th century is a continuation of it. I think it's primarily rooted in that modernist crisis. Or the idea, even Christians today speak of the Christian myth, meaning the Christian myth is not different enough from other myth to vindicate the Christian claims to singularity, which are pure ethno, centrism. Therefore, it becomes very important you know, to check, because I don't think it's a question of uh, whether one should be polite to other religions, or one should save Christianity for singularity. But I think the question deserves to be examined scientifically. It's obvious that the question of anti-Semitism is tied up to this question. Because in order to refuse the comparative religion significance of these texts, about the murder of Christ being the same murder as all these murders from the foundation of the world all over the earth, you have to restrict their significance to the Jews. See see them as some kind of rhetorical amplification of uh, Jewish guilt, which is what the Christians do not want to do, but in a way they still have to do it in the sense that there is no alternate reading. You know, there is no other reading, and uh, it's fascinating. So, the Christians have emphasized the singularity of Christianity, I think, in the wrong way. For instance, medieval theologians see the violence of the passion itself as something extremely unique, extremely special, which is obviously false. Since the parable of the vineyard says that the murder of the son is different because of the identity of the son, but not because of the violence, since it is compared to all the previous murders since the foundation of the vineyard. So, if Jesus himself says that the passion is one example among many similar murders, the Christians must face up to this idea. They cannot be more Christian than the Jesus of the Gospels. If there is something truly unique about the Christian doctrine, it will become visible on the basis of these similarities, not because we will successfully elude these similarities. And I think it can be shown, and it's a question of reading the text, that the Gospels are saying something about human culture as such. In other words, they are defining a certain type of murder, and they are defining it in concrete terms, in realistic terms. And, of course, what do we know about these murders? We know that they are collective from the parable of the vineyards, from the "you" collective you, which addresses people in general, not only the Jews in my view, but all human beings. They are collective, but if we have only the passion to define the typical features of these murders, We can probably do it, but it would be better to have another murder. And we have another murder, which is similar to the Passion. We have it only in two Gospels out of four, Matthew and Mark, but it is obviously the murder of John the Baptist. Since John the Baptist is defined as a prophet, he should die like Jesus. Therefore, we can give a concrete comparative meaning by comparing the death of John the Baptist to the Passion, and see which features are common to both. And obviously, what is common is that uh, in both accounts, the main phenomenon is a polarization, the mobilization among may, of many people against a victim who, until that moment, had not aroused the hostility of his future murderers. As a matter of fact, a few days before the passion, the people of Jerusalem as you know, have greeted Jesus with enthusiasm. And this is a mimetic feature. In other words, it's the same crowd. If they change so suddenly, you see what I mean? It, the suddenness of the change is a revelation of the mimetic nature of the change. In both murders, it all begins with a few instigators, or even a single one, the religious leaders in the case of Jesus, and Herodias in the case of John. They are the only people whose hostility to the victim predates the polarization which they do their best to trigger. But they are not essential. Uh, We can imagine that they might not be there. The polarization alone is essential. So, the nature of this polarization is obvious, and it is... The word mimetic comes naturally. in order to understand what this polarization is about, the murder of John the Baptist is tremendously important because the cause of the polarization is there. And it is, and it is, salo means dancing. If you take Greek text, you will see that the dance is regarded by the Greeks as the most mimetic of all arts. No one understands what it means, but it's obvious. The early uses of mimesis uh, 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 are all, in the case of dancing, and they are all connected with sacrificial ritual. Dancing puts the sacrifices in the right mood for the immolation of the victim. And that's obviously what happens in the case of John, even though it is not a ritual. In the passion, there is no counterpart to Salome's dance. But all observable instances of someone joining the hostile crowd are mimetic. And the most spectacular, of course, is Peter. Like us modern men, Peter cannot stand the disapproval of his colleagues. In a Jerusalem crowd, he feels like an outsider, and he wants to feel like an insider. And he knows very well that it's not enough to like the same things. As your enemies, you must must have the same enemies to be friends. Therefore, he mimics the crowd's hostility to Jesus. And he is the individual with the greatest spiritual investment in Jesus. If fidelity and constancy should be expected from anyone, they should be expected from Peter. And of course, the text is not an indictment of Peter, but an effort to reveal how vulnerable even the best people, the most committed to a given cause, are to mimetic polarization, such as we have in both murders. Most modern examples are comical in our world. They are fashion, you know, and fads. But they can be very violent, too. So, since we have reasons to believe that all murders mentioned by Jesus since the foundation of the world are like the murder of John the Baptist and like the passion, we can assume they all are mimetic polarizations. When Jesus says that he will die like all prophets before him, he means that his death will repeat the same pattern of mimetic violence that is connected with the foundation of the world. And of course, the connection with the foundation of the world cannot be a fortuitous one, or an accidental one, or it cannot be a rhetorical amplification. It goes back to the beginning. It really means that the foundation of the world and the first such murder are one and the same thing. By foundation of the world, we don't mean creation, of course. We mean the first culture. And this text is obviously an interpretation of of Cain and Abel. If you go, you know Cain is famous for two things only, for killing his brother and for founding the first civilization. But if you go to the text, you can see that these two actions are one and the same there is no difference between, between them they are perfectly alive so the gospels say something which is quite significant about how these murders take place, but do they say something equally explicit about why they take place which is even more important why they should be repeated they are never banal they are not a banal occurrence you see, but they are nevertheless atypical occurrence, they belong to a type therefore they have an essence and you know there is another word which I have emphasized but which the exegesis of which I put at the end of Things Hidden and it should be much at the beginning which is the word scandalon. you know and I never noticed until recently that the word scandalon is part of the passion because when Jesus announces to his disciples that they are going to take part in the Passion, in a way, at least passively. Peter more actively than any of them, but the other ones are going to be passive accomplices. He says, I'm going to be a scandal to you, you know. Blessed those to whom I'm not a cause of scandal means that there are some people who, even though they are very few, who do not partake in the Passion. Therefore, the word scandal is a bridge between collective violence and intersubjective violence between two or three people, because when we think of scandal, of course, we think of uh, the intersubjective uh, use, you know. And what does scandal mean? The idea is biblical. It's not classical Greek, you know. And there is the idea of repetition in stumbling. I think that the best translation of scandal on is stumbling block, which is translation of the King James Version in modern Bibles, as you probably, perhaps noticed, the word scandalon has been gradually eliminated, which shows how dangerous some of the modern translations are. It's been gradually eliminated because some psychoanalysts have said that it had an exclusively, I think it's a reason, uh, that it had a primarily sexual meaning, you know, and the translators of the Bible tried to avoid it, you know, in order not to be, uh, to be a little protected. It's always that defensive attitude of Christianity in cases where it doesn't have to be. So, scandalone means the obstacle against which you stumble all the time. Normally, if you stumble against an obstacle, then you avoid it, that's what. Right. If you stumble all the time, there is something wrong. You're obsessed by that obstacle. It attracts you. The more it repels you, the more it attracts you. And the word really comes from a word which means to limp. And if you stumble all the time, of course, you seem to be uh, limping. So, why should scandalon be used for the passion as well as for something which seems to be purely psychological, psychopathological, and so forth? In order to understand, we must realize, of course, that scandalon is the only word in the language we have for the model obstacle. For mimetic rivalry, so is it legitimate to see mimetic rivalry with the word scandal? I think it is, because obviously imitation is all over the place in the gospel, since both Jesus and Satan are teachers of imitation, and they are both imitators themselves, and they are both imitators of the same model, who is God. You know. Um, but the difference, we are told by theologians who are always right, even though they don't know why. Uh, we are told, you know, that the difference is that Satan imitates in a spirit of rivalry and usurpation, which I think is excellent. But what does it mean concretely? You know, we are not facing Satan. We are facing the standing of Satan, who is, of course, the model obstacle. The, the, this is mimetic rivalry the imitation of Jesus because imitation is good in the gospel since Jesus recommends it and Jesus never presents himself as one of these modern gurus who, says, imi- who say imitate me because I don't imitate anyone Jesus says I imitate God and you imitate me and there is no appropriation no desire for appropriation in God therefore the imitation of the Father will not lead you in trouble Mimetic rivalry, per se, is not regarded as sinful. Scandalon is not mimetic rivalry. It's mimetic rivalry when it becomes obsessive. It's the inability of man to walk away from mimetic rivalry. Therefore, scandalon means addiction in all meanings, you know. Furious competitiveness, but also sex, drugs, everything, which is always a substitute for competitiveness. So, Scandalon, the thing which is most different from the modern world and uh, which was present very much this morning when Jude analyzed uh, Racine, is that when we think about problems, you know, what we call our problems, we cherish them. We see them as something which may individualizes us very much, you know. The, the some, scandalized people, and we all are, you know, feel that their problems turn them into individuals. And I think the Gospels say the opposite, you know. The more scandalized we are, the more prone we become to substitution of scandals. In politics, for instance, people get very excited about politics, usually are unburdening some kind of scandal on a public target which uh, society always has. When we are burdened with scandals, we unconsciously seek public substitutes, collective targets upon whom to unburden them. And, of course, this is what's going on in the Passion, and this is the reason, I think, Jesus says, I will be a scandal to you. In order to have the intermediate position, the text which has to be studied, I don't have time to do it here, is, of course, the move, get thee behind me satan your scandal to me of jesus to peter peter is the archetypal disciple everything goes through him you know but i don't have too much time for that but the violent unanimity of the passion is obviously the fruit of scandal and an important text for that i think is the is the the bad thief you see what I mean? The thief is a most scandalized uh, individual, and he's, the, as the good thief in Luke points out, he's in exactly the same situation as Jesus. He's a double from a certain point of view. And he joins the crowd against Jesus. And I think it's another very important mimetic uh, observation which is there. Another very important mimetic observation of course is the episode of Barabbas. You know, because Barabbas shows Pilate is a good politician. Pilate uh, knows that the power should not let a lynching mob be in charge. It's a question of uh, sound politics, you know, because it reveals the nakedness of power. So what Pilate does is to offer the crowd, like Ulysses does in Greek texts, a man who is already sentenced to death. Therefore, he wants to minimize the illegality and he knows we are in a game of substitution. He's perfectly aware that the crowd is not really interested in Jesus per se. Therefore, I don't think the text should be viewed as a specific indictment of the Jews. All it means that the Jews refuse Barabbas is that the time for substitution has passed, that Pilate acted too late when no substitution was possible anymore. And being the good politician that he is, he understands immediately, and he surrenders uh, Jesus to the crowd. And the main thing to see, of course, is that the crowd is immediately appeased. The riot that Pilate fears is not going to take place. As soon as Jesus is surrendered, the crucifixion turns into a spectacle, and everybody will disperse very uh, nicely after, after this. It has been suggested that Pilate's handling of Jesus reflects a pro-Roman bias, or rather, once again, an anti-Jewish bias. The parallel handling of the Herod-John the Baptist relationship makes this interpretation most unlikely, because Herod is a Jew. There must be an intention common to both texts. They are too close to each other. And this intention is quite intelligible. The sovereign, each time, surrenders to the crowd. The superiority of the crowd would not become manifest if the personal desire of the sovereign were not different from the desire of the crowd. And it's a sovereign who bows to the crowd rather than the reverse. Herod and Pilate would both like to save John and Jesus, but it cannot be done without antagonizing the crowd. And like all good politicians today, it's the crowd who is right and who will get its way. A crowd in a lynching mood is the supreme power. This is what the role of Pilate and Herod really shows. For the gospel's political power has been rooted in the crowd since the foundation of the world. Now, are there specific formulas that tell you this, you know? At the end of the parable of the vineyard, there is that famous borrowing from Psalm, I don't remember the number, the stone that the builders rejected has become the keystone. You know, some commentators—I read an article—say that there is absolutely no reason for that sentence to be right after the parable of the vineyard; that the two are obviously unconnected. You know, the stone that the builders rejected has become the keystone doesn't make any sense architecturally but from the point of view of the scapegoat foundation of society, it does make a lot of sense. And the Christian uh, exegetes say that it's a reference to Jesus, and it is, but it is also a reference to all other murders. And there, there is no difference. In a way, it talks about the relationship between Christianity and the other religions. In all instances, human culture is predicated on victims. The stone that the builders rejected has become the keystone. Another definition of course of the society in terms of the founding murder and it will have to be done very carefully is the powers of this world or celestial powers or sometimes powers of the air. It seems very magical and in a way, there are still maybe a few little traces of magic. But every time the powers are mentioned, especially in Acts, you know, it is repeated that they have murdered Jesus. That, in a way, it's their definition, that they have murdered Jesus. So, naturally, some commentators say, well, that shows these early first Christians were megalomaniac." You know, they, were, they thought they were going to conquer the world, which they were in some ways, at least. In the, um, but, you know, the powers of this world, I think the reference to the death of Jesus is more general than it seems. It means that they all depend on the same type of murder as the death of Jesus. If you really look at the text closely, you will see that uh, it is really this. But well, I think the main definition of culture from the point of view of founding murder, which has everything, is really the doctrine of Satan in the Gospels. You know, the doctrine of Satan, even the most convinced Christians today never say a word about it. They are ashamed of Satan. They are scared of Satan. They've always been scared of Satan. In the Middle Ages, they were scared of Satan in a certain way. Today they are scared in a different way. But they are even more scared today than they were then. because. They fear that the presence of Satan in the Gospel is a tremendous argument against the uh, Gospels. And therefore, they avoid Satan, who obviously plays an enormous role in all four Gospels. And if you look at the Satan of the Gospels, you know there is something which is unique about him. is that he is both, he is a principle of disorder, he is the of Because he's the tempter first, therefore the model of desire. And once you've accepted, uh, yielded to temptation, you think that you left Satan behind. But suddenly he reappears in front of you, barring the the road. He is the obstacle and the model. Therefore he's disorder, And he's the type of disorder that is contagious, of course, since it's mimetic. uh, And therefore, scandals must happen. Jesus says, which doesn't mean that there is a certain law. Scandals must happen because men prefer the glory that comes from men rather than the glory that comes from God. If they prefer the glory that comes from men, they will run into mimetic rivalry. And therefore, they will develop scandals. And if they do, of course, the order of the world is threatened. The world should not endure. Since the world endures, there must be some kind of uh, mechanism that prevents it from dying. And it's going to be called Satan, too. Satan is the prince of this world. Therefore, he's not disorder only. He could not be called a prince. A prince must be able to protect his subjects from what threatens them, even if it comes from the prince himself. You see what I mean? Therefore, Satan must have a way to moderate himself. And the real question, what is it the, the Gospels tell us? The Gospel ask the question, how can Satan cast out Satan? This question should not be interpreted as meaning, can Satan cast out Satan? Yes, Satan does cast out Satan. He casts out Satan so much, that ultimately he won't be able to do it anymore. He will have exhausted his power. This is the meaning. But for the time being, he still casts out Satan. How does he? There is no answer. When there is no answer in the Gospels, you can be sure that the answer is the passion. The passion is the hour of Satan. Why? Because it's a casting out of Satan. What does the casting out of Satan mean? It means that the unanimous violence of scandals destroys itself through unanimity. Peace is reestablished established To a certain extent, the passion, even though the passion is a failure from the point of view of Satan, since the Christians secede, we have examples of the peace that comes from Satan. In Luke, there is an observation that is tremendously precious, you know, about uh, Herod and Pilate. They exchange Jesus like a kind of dish, sacrificial dish, you know. And after this exchange, there is that incredible observation from that day on Herod and Pilate who were enemies became friends now this friendship of Herod and Pilate which is the fruit of the passion is not christian communion it's another type it's another type about which the gospel it's not the peace that surpasses all understanding it's human peace it's human peace which comes from the founding murder which is suggested here. There is something even more powerful and almost unbelievably powerful, which is constantly avoided in the Gospels. It's that the false religion is there. It's the belief of Herod in the resurrection of John the Baptist. You know, the, the scene of the murder of John the Baptist is introduced by the announcement that the fame of Jesus is spreading in many circles. And Herod is mentioned in connection with this. In uh, Mark, some people say that Jesus must be a resurrected John the Baptist. In Matthew, it's Herod himself who invents the idea of a resurrected John the Baptist. Why? Because he's the murderer. And the text makes it clear since it's Herod says, This John whom I beheaded. He has resurrected. You see, it ties the two very clearly. Therefore, I really think the Gospels are talking about other religions as well as themselves. But now you're going to tell me, aren't they exactly the same? Aren't we, in a way, making the relationship between the two types of religions so close that it's going to be impossible to distinguish them? Well, Christians are people of very little faith, and they don't understand their religion at all. The closer we get, the more the Gospels define the religion of Herod, you know, which is very close. And if we think of the Gospels, you know, they had a true resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. And if they were the mediocre propaganda pamphlet, you know, the electoral document that many contemporary critics make out of them. Would they have the resurrection of John the Baptist in there? They would avoid it like the plague. You know, the idea that there could be a belief in a resurrection which was not true and nevertheless was the resurrection of a very respectable man, a prophet, you see what I mean? And which is false. And Mark doesn't seem to worry at all about this. A modern man, you know, unthinkable, For us. And the reason, of course, is you can see it very clearly. If you look only in the Gospels, do we have two communions? We have the communion of the persecutors against Jesus. And this communion can produce religion. Because if this communion is unanimous enough, it reconciles the community, it makes Herod more peaceful it uh, works like a tranquilizer of sort, which they had no chemical ones at the time, but they had more of that sort of thing. You see, but who are the Christians? They are the other people who secede from this unanimity. Therefore, this this is absolutely fundamental. How could you confuse the two? Since one is continuous with the collective murder, and the one, and the other one is the rejection of the collective murder. And the rejection of the collective murder, of course, is the understanding of the collective murder. The ability to understand that a formula like the stone that the builders rejected is a definition of the founding of human society. And also an understanding that the passion and all murders of the same type are not divine events but are purely human, purely mimetic. As long as you don't understand menaces, you tend to deify it, because it puts you in a great conflictual mess. Then after that, it seems to save you. The victim that you killed reestablishes the order that it had disturbed, and a, an archaic God is always a mixture of violence and peace. In the case of Jesus, the main thing is the proclamation of the innocence of the victim. Not the innocence of a single victim, but the innocence of all such, of all victims such as Jesus. Therefore, all the victims of all murders since the beginning of the world. Their death is arbitrary. And the proof of this is that in order to make the definition of Satan complete, you have to realize that Satan is this disorder which turns back into order, when it becomes unanimous, when it polarizes on a single victim. But the word Satan originally, its first meaning means the accuser. And the accuser is the accuser of victims. He's the one who makes these accusations stick, who can force people to believe in them. That's why the formula of John is, he was a murderer from the beginning, he was a liar and the father of lies. Lie should not be interpreted there as one single lie, but as a continuous lie, as the lie which has enveloped mankind since the foundation of the world. And the text, of course, is another one which is accused of anti-Semitism, because it says to the Jews, you are the sons of Satan insofar as you do not see that lie and uh, you share in the same belief as uh, uh, the rest of the world. And of course, what the Gospels tell you too is that man by himself is absolutely unable to get out of this uh, lie. You see, which is a thing which is very important. Therefore, the only way to get out of this lie is with the help of God himself. And the God who helps you get out of this lie has a name which is very significant in relationship to Satan, the accuser, because his name, which sounded so strange to Jerome, you know, the translator of the Bible, is that he kept the Greek, which is paracrete. And paracrete in Greek is a very simple word that means the lawyer for the defense, the lawyer for the defense of victims. The Holy Spirit, first of all, is the one who tells you that the victims are innocent. He tells you that the victims are innocent by showing you that these victims have been destroyed through a mimetic process, which seems to be divine, which is presented as divine in the Iliad and the Odyssey, when the gods intervenes on one side or the other of the battle, and which, of course, is made a little bit divine, if we sacralize the passion, and if we regard the passion as something completely unique. If we get away from the desacralization of violence, we need new scapegoats. We are back a little bit in the sacred, and the only scapegoats we can have are the Jews who are uh, immediately there. The only way you can get rid of it is uh, through the means of the Jews. If we go to mythology we will see that mythology is very much like the passion in a certain way from a positivistic viewpoint. You have the same themes. You have a crisis, you have the murder, and you have a divine epiphany. But if you look at the text and if you put the generative scapegoat in there, which the Bible provides us, which the Gospels provide us with, you will see immediately the difference between the two. Oedipus is guilty. Oedipus is guilty. Oedipus has committed the parricide and the incest that make him responsible for the plague. And uh, therefore, instead of being the innocence of the victim which is proclaimed, it is the guilt of the victim which is proclaimed. This question of guilt and innocence, the positivist anthropologists have not seen the theologians have not seen, which is pretty amazing. The only modern thinker who has seen it, and who I think in some ways is the greatest modern theologian, in a bizarre way, is Friedrich Nietzsche. You know, if you take Aphorism 1052 in The Will to Power, you English speaking people do not have the advantage of the, the new edition of Nietzsche in which all the unpublished fragments are back in their original state. You have only the will to power, which is in part the work of the sister. But she didn't change as much. And if you go to aphorism 1052, you will see the death of Dionysus and the death of Jesus. Same martyrdom, same death. The difference is in the interpretation. Nietzsche is not a positivist. He understands that to have the same murder In both types of texts doesn't mean they are necessarily the same. It is not the same thing to interpret a murder from the point of view of the murderers and to interpret it from the point of view of the victims. This is what Nietzsche says. He says, Dionysus, the acceptance of sacrifice. In order to have a good society, you must have victims. Christ, the refusal of sacrifice, the innocent victim is slander on all religions. One has to agree with every word in this except the word slander. What Nietzsche does not see is that it is not a slander, it is the truth. It is not a truth which is inimical to other religions that said they had their time, but it's simply the truth, a truth that you can verify. You can understand me if you understand that the victim is guilty not because it's a fiction, not because it's a truth, but because we are dealing with a scapegoat phenomenon, which is misinterpreted by the scapegoaters. And if the scapegoaters misinterpret the scapegoat phenomenon, we understand very well why it reconciled them, because they don't understand it, they are enveloped in the lie, and therefore why they would want to repeat it in order to make that reconciliation alive again, which is what we call ritual. Ritual is nothing but an effort to repeat with substitute victim that collective murder which first reconciles the community. In other words, the Gospels work. The Gospels interpret archaic religion, and they interpret modern, the modern world too. Because when I read the Oedipus myth in terms of a witch hunt, what do I do? I put it in a modern context. Why? Because in a modern context, we don't have myth anymore. Why don't we have myth? Because we don't believe in myth. We believe in myth only if they are way back in the past and if the classicists and the university persuade us and the, uh, the psychoanalysts, unfortunately, persuade us that there is more truth in them than in the, uh, the biblical world. But if we applied the same principle of interpretation to the Oedipus myth, which has exactly the same themes as a modern, as a medieval witch hunt, in the Middle Ages, during the Black Death, which was a real plague, the Jews and other people were accused of causing the plague by committing sexual crimes such as incest and killing infants, you know, and doing that sort of thing. Anytime we see a text such as this one inside our culture. We do not believe in it. We know it's a lie. And it shows how wrong the deconstructors are about the powers of interpretation. Because what is the status of our knowledge of what a witch hunt is? You know We cannot say that a witch hunt, is it science? I think it's more. It's stronger than science. It is terribly important for us to recognize a witch hunt. But in the 14th and the 15th century, and still in the 16th, very intelligent people, such as the great French jurist Jean Baudin, still believed that witches had to be killed and that they were guilty of something terrible. So what is amazing about our world is not that a few centuries ago we were still burning witches, you know, and historians are still, you know, scandalized by this. What is amazing and unique about our civilization is the way the witch, this witch hunt ended, which was by a total non-belief in witchcraft, a total non-belief in magical thinking, which I think is exclusively the property of a world which has been influenced by the Jewish Bible and the Christian Gospels. If you start looking around seriously... You know, you will see that magical thinking is the norm. It's a default position of the human computer and not our attitude today, which we assume is human nature, you know, not to believe in witches. We believe or we believe that in the 16th century, maybe some kind of scientific spirit descended upon us, you know, from where we don't know. Mm -hmm. And because we were scientific, suddenly superior To all other people before, because of our native genius, we stopped burning witches. No, I say because we slipped the text of the Passion under the witch trial, we realized that witches were victims of mimetic mimetic mobilization, such as the Passion or the death of John the Baptist. And this is the reason we invented science. Most of our explanations are reversed, because they do not want to see the role of religion in our world. They've made up their mind that they would would suppress that. But we probably are in a transitional world where we are extremely close to, uh, in a way, the destruction of the intellectual balance, which has existed until now. The intellectual balance, thanks to which myth remains intact, whereas in our world, no myth is possible because we are too able to read them. So, what is the problem with Christian interpretation of Christianity? I think the problem with Christian interpretation, especially in the recent past, but it was true since the beginning, is that it conceived the uniqueness of Christianity in aesthetic and romantic fashion, which means mimetic fashion. When we think of a work of art as uniquely original, a poem, for instance, or a painting, we understand the word originality in the sense of innovation, which is a sense of mimetic rivalry, which is the sense which in one or two centuries has destroyed art in our world. Every poet, every painter must say, must paint something which has never been painted, never been said. In two centuries, we have destroyed art through mimetic rivalry, And we tend to see the uniqueness of the Gospels in such terms. There is another meaning of originality, originality, which, which is the originality of Jesus. To undo the scapegoat system, the origin, we must go back to that origin, and you must start anew. And starting anew, of course, means refraining from partaking in the violence of scapegoating. And, of course, becoming a scapegoat oneself, which is the paradox of Christianity. Uh, Which is a paradox of Christianity in the sense that it repeats in every way, seems to repeat completely, the and repeat. It has the same form and, in many ways, the same content as all religions. Therefore, it is very closely connected to them. And at the same time, it's separated by an abyss, which becomes totally visible if you see these two communions, and which is absolutely invisible to the scholars. I think it's one of the meanings of the saying of Jesus, thank you Lord for showing this to little children and keeping it hidden from the wise people and the the great scholars. Thus, Far from disproving once and for all the unique singularity of Christianity, the recognition that the Christian scheme and the archaic religious schemes are very much alike is the only basis upon which the validity of the Christian claims to singularity can be vindicated. Real as it is, the old Christian ethnocentrism has nothing to do with what I'm saying now and cannot be invoked against it, I think. Now I go back one more uh, time to my original question about the presumed anti-Jewishness of the Gospels. The text upon which the accusation relies have a much vaster scope than New Testament exegetes have realized. They reveal the violent origin of all human society. The anti-Jewish reading of these texts is both a cause and a consequence of this erroneous interpretation. There are existential aspects too, of course. I'm only talking about the intellectual aspect. I'm only trying to define this. All misunderstanding of the Gospels inevitably triggers a relapse into scapegoating, which must occur at uh, the expense of the only people in the story who can be blamed for what is really not a specific Jewish affair, but uh, a universal one. Another necessary component is that some of the violent sacred is re-injected into the text of the Gospel. The Gospels are not anti-Jewish, I think, but as long as the universal significance of the text which have nourished Christian anti-Semitism is not widely acknowledged, many Christians will believe that the only choice today is between an anti-Semitic gospel or no gospel at all. What is needed, therefore, is a critique of the narrowly anti-Jewish reading uh, of the text, which is still ours, which I try to do, but which should be done in much uh, uh, greater detail. And the thing about the accusations of anti-Semitism is that, in a way, what is very bad about them is that they exonerate the Christians from any feeling of guilt regarding Christian anti-Semitism, which is quite real, of course, but which I don't think is pointed by the Gospels. The Christians, if they believe these accusations, can say to themselves, we are innocent of all scapegoating of the Jews. We were misled by our religion. We sincerely believe what the Gospels taught us, and they made anti-Semites out of us. It is amazing, but it is understandable it is logically necessary that the relentless human effort to elude the substance of the Gospels should end up with this remarkable twist, a scapegoating of the very text that made scapegoating intelligible to us by refusing it in all its forms. Intellectually as well as spiritually, I think nothing is more important than to despair this enormous misunderstanding. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.